guest today is Scott Squires of Bloomberg, who we've been really excited to talk about uh, for a long time, and our excitement has been growing uh, these last few weeks with all kinds of interesting shenanigans going on. Um, sort of the tail end of the Argentine restructuring, but especially the ongoing restructuring by the province of Buenos Aires. Scott is maybe the most uh, perceptive and um, informative uh, observer and reporter of, frankly, um, uh, a lot of EM debt, but certainly uh, certainly the goings on in Argentina and the province of Buenos Aires. So we've been really excited to talk to him about Pac-Man and redesignation and um, just what it is that's going on out there in, in Buenos Aires. So Scott, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And me too as well. I'm really excited to be here. Can we just start with a little bit of overview? Where are we now in the course of the province of Buenos Aires debt restructuring? And kind of briefly, what is it about the process the province has run that has a lot of people kind of pissed off, frankly? Right, sure. So we're actually, like you said, really at the tail end of this entire saga, which <clears throat> really has been going on since since, since I started uh, with Bloomberg um, nearly two years ago. We've, we've been talking about province of Buenos Aires for nigh 16 months here. Um, and, and basically, this goes all the way back to when the new government took office in Argentina. That's the government of Alberto Fernandez, um, who was inaugurated in, in, in 2019. And, and Fernandez's government is associated with the more leftist factions of Argentine politics, uh, generally known as, as the Peronists, which have a long history in Argentina um, and, and certainly a long history with, with international creditors. But the PDA saga itself really, really even even preceded the Argentine uh, sovereign debt restructuring that that we all heard so much about last year, um, and and really the beginnings go back to soon after the the new government took office. Um, the the governor of 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 the province of Buenos Aires, Axel Kicillof. Um, said early, early on in his tenure, in December 2019, January 2020, we don't have the money to pay this, this upcoming bond payment. Uh, it was about $250 million on a, on a bond that was uh, going to mature in 2021. And this sparked some, uh, a, a lot of kerfuffle in international markets because it was already known that Argentina was going to have to restructure all of its overseas debt. But the PBA, the, the, the PBA story kicked off this entire thing when Axel said that they couldn't pay this one $250 million bond payment and asked international creditors, uh, namely its, its largest creditor, Fidelity, um, big Boston-based fund, to delay this, this payment. So that was way back in, in, in early 2020, even before the pandemic. Um, there was this back and forth between PBA and creditors, and there was sort of the standoff between Axel and, and the creditors. And, and Axel, is, if, if you've been paying attention to Argentine debt restructurings for the last decade, 
Uh, Axel has this sort of bad boy image of, of being you know, nefarious to creditors or, or being hard headed and, and butting heads with international markets. He was the economy minister under Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, the previous, um, the, the previous Kirchnerist politician before Mockery. Um, and Mark, Mark, tell me if I'm if I'm going off on too many tangents or anything like that. No, no this is this is really helpful in, in part because I think one of the themes that's going to come through is there's a real through line of creditor irritation with Argentina and also um, uh, Argentine distaste for holdouts. That's going to be a big part of this story. But but maybe it would help to focus uh, on sort of how that came to a boil in the way the, the PBA restructuring was actually done. Yeah, sure. So like I said, there, there, was, a bit, there was a bit of a standoff in early 2020. And soon after this whole standoff was resolved, Axel ended up paying the $250 million bond payment and immediately said right after that, we're going to have to restructure the rest of our $7 billion in, in overseas bonds. So that was around the same time that Argentina was, was going through its entire restructuring um, last year. But what we basically saw over the last, I mean, almost you know, year and a half was little to no progress being made on the PBA front while the sovereign restructured its own bonds and every single other Argentine province went through its own debt restructurings. Um, and we're talking about a dozen of other you know, provincial issuers uh, that reached deals with their creditors while PBA sat in default. Um, and so this is sort of one of the, the sticking points with creditors that, that really made people irate throughout this whole process was that, okay, we have the, the, the sovereign restructuring all done and dusted. Each of these provinces are going through and, and getting deals done but PBA still sits here and it's still kind of the, you know, the elephant, in, the $7 billion elephant in the room. Um, so that sort of kicked off this, this whole frustration uh, that we've been hearing, you know, that, that you were, you were mentioning, Mark. Scott, um, so just even to go a little bit further so that I understand the playing field, I know, and Mark and I have heard this from a number of creditors, especially in response to some of our blog posts, that creditors are very unhappy, or at least some set of creditors who are willing to email us are unhappy. And they're unhappy with what they view as unduly aggressive behavior, first by Argentina in terms of using its contracts and now by the province of Buenos Aires. But it's not all been super aggressive. And just as a starting point, I'm particularly puzzled by what I see as very generous, kind, loving treatment that Argentina gave to its local law governed Bonds. So as I think anybody who knows sovereign debt knows that if you have local law governed debt, particularly in Argentina, then they can do whatever they want to you. 
But we saw in the restructuring, you know, first conversations about how we're going to treat everybody equally. Um, that seems fair and nice and gentle. And then the final offer for the local law bonds, I think was the same. They gave them the same deal as the foreign law bonds. So while at this, at, on the one hand, they say, you know, we don't have any money, we, we can't pay you. Um, we have to have this sort of uh, hard-nosed restructuring uh, for the foreign creditors. The holders of the local law bonds, I think much of that was US dollar denominated. So maybe our economist friends would actually call it foreign. Um, they just got a gift. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you can shed some light on this as a backdrop to talking about the PBA, because this local foreign thing has has uh, puzzled me. Mark, before we let Scott answer, I, I mean, I may not have articulated the question very clearly, so feel free to add, subtract. Does your question, live by the sword, die by the sword. I'm letting Scott handle it. <laughs> no, I think it's a, I think it's a great question, me too. Um, and, and you're right in that the, the holders of Argentina's local law debt did get a pretty sweet deal in the end. But the rhetoric was I'm sorry, I forgot. Like, who are these? I, I've always thought of a local law debt as, you know, maybe it's like local banks and you, you really care about your local financial institutions. But as Mark pointed out to me in a recent conversation, it's quite possible that the holders of this local stuff are the same BlackRock or Golden Tree or Fidelity who is holding the foreign stuff. And no, then and it becomes that, complicated. That's absolutely, that absolutely was the case, me too. And, and that's what made this, this so interesting. Just to back up, a lot of this local law debt well, a lot of the dollar-denominated local law debt was issued even prior to the Macri days. So there was some of these these local law bonar bonds, which are dollar-denominated Argentine uh, paper under local law, um, floating around even before the Macri years of the the issuance frenzy of of peso notes and and dollar-denominated so, uh, sub-sovereign notes from all the provinces. Um, so there was a, certainly a mix of holders of, of, of like you said, local banks, local uh, hedge funds or brokerages, and big real money funds, uh, your PIMCOs, your BlackRocks, your, your Franklin Templetons. Um, and, and that second part is really what was key in the local law restructuring, because even though there wasn't a lot of leverage for those holders of the local law bonds to, to really exact uh, any, any sort of, you know, more favorable terms out of Argentina, um, simply because, you know, they're denominated under local paper and courts friendly to, to Argentina are, are certainly not going to bend to the will of, of some, you know, fund manager's lawsuit from, you know, out of California or something like that. Um, but it was a lot of the same people at the negotiating table that were holding the local law bonds as well as well as the sovereigns. And so there was almost certainly some level of horse trading there, um, you know, at, at the negotiating table where they were trying to, to sort out what to do with the local versus so Scott, the- can I just, uh, just uh, interrupt um, to add more to my question. So just to, to 
And, and maybe we, I, I can drag Mark into this, even though he said that I was going to die by the sword on, on this question. I don't want to die quite so uh, early. If I am to, to sort of understand how you've set this up, there are, there are big creditors on the foreign law, law bond side who have big chunks also of local law holdings. And they are sitting in one negotiation where they want recoveries on their foreign stuff and they have the votes uh, to you know, block or allow these collective action clauses to work. But they're also negotiating at the same time implicitly, if not explicitly, although you know, it'd be really interesting to find out what the hell happened, uh, for, their, for nice, chunky local recoveries. And then there's, there's the temptation, if I hold a lot of local law bonds, and I, you know, I'm going to give a little bit on the foreign in exchange for the republic pay, promising to pay me on my locals. And, and that really screws over my fellow creditors who doesn't have any locals. The reason I'm setting this scenario like this is the whole reason for bondholder protections in the US uh, that comes in the 1930s after all of the railroad uh, bankruptcies is because of these kinds of uh, side deals that are cut and uh, the SEC and Congress says, you know, these kinds of side deals that are being cut between the debtor and the majority of creditors have to stop. And uh, um, it looks like in this particular deal, I mean, there was so much shady that at least I perceive, maybe because I don't understand, you know, the special uh, insider insights that went on. But this just, I mean, this, like even before getting to PBA, th this looks problematmic. Mark, I'm going to invoke you again, but I guess, I, I guess, so, I mean, I've been thinking that to me, the problem is a little bit, or the thing that has been puzzling me is a little bit different, but I mean, Scott, I guess I would like to know why, if I were a big creditor who held positions in both the foreign and local law debt. Now is exactly the time that I would want to take most of my my consideration on the foreign law side because I would think my reasons, sort of my trust of of the issuer is at an all time low. I'm not super confident I'm going to be getting whatever it is that I've been promised in this restructuring, and I want what I would think of as the strongest legal rights that I could possibly have. So I'm just, I'm a little bit puzzled, I guess, at the, the fact that, that there's equal treatment being given to the bonds and the fact that anyone would view a, it's sort of puzzling that anyone would view the same promise, the, the same financial consideration in a local law bond as worth as much as you know the the foreign law bond. That, that that is a long rambling question, but I'm it's it is very it's a very odd dynamic to me as well. Sure, I mean, it's certainly puzzling. I mean, especially to you know you have to remember the fact that that the creditors who bought into these local you know these local notes at at the beginning. I mean, all all of this risk was implicitly you know there from the get go. They knew that they were dealing with 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 a you know a sovereign with a with a history of of 
uh, debt defaults and, and, and not making good on their contracts. And the other, the other complicating factor, especially for holders of, of local law peso denominated notes was the fact that Argentina brought back capital controls with full force at the beginning of, at the end of Macri's last term, at the beginning of Alberto Fernandez's uh, tenure. And so you had a mix of holders of local law dollar paper who are at the same time negotiating for their foreign, with their foreign law, you know, dollar bonds, but also holders, those, those very same holders that held peso notes and with, with, with money that was, you know, for all intents and purposes, trapped in Argentina uh, due, to, due to capital controls. Um, so it, it was extremely uh, convoluted. Uh, the, the holding landscape was, was, was definitely, you know, a mixed bag. Um, and so yeah, a lot of these questions that you're, that you're bringing up are, are excellent. Um, and I, I can't, I, I can't uh, claim to, to, to know the you know, all of the answers, but um, it, it, it certainly, a, you know, raises some interesting questions. Um, so Scott, just, just in, uh, before Mark asks his question, um, this is just purely a, f a factual question. Were the local law bonds um, trading the same at the same price as the foreign all through? Like, so did did the markets think, oh, you know, they're gonna get paid? Or uh, do you do you remember about this? You're one of the only people who wrote about this. If I if yeah, yeah def definitely. Um, it, it's a great question because because they were for a while, um, and and that's what makes this interesting. Basically, the market viewed this promise of equal treatment. So with so much credibility that that the local and the foreign law notes were were trading almost in lockstep, you know, with, with maybe some minor variations up until about April 2020, um, what, before before the government defaulted, but um, after COVID kind of came in full force in April, Alberto Fernandez's government said that they would stop all payments on. Uh, local law dollar denominated notes um, while the, the sovereign restructuring on the foreign laws was going on and especially while they were trying to shore up finances to you know, for, for public spending for COVID to fight the pandemic. At that moment is sort of when this equal treatment discourse went out the window, at least in the, in the, in the eyes of the market, and you see a, a, a large spread um, almost immediately or immediately prior to that or right after uh, of, of local and, and foreign law notes pricing diverging. Um, and there was all this kerfuffle in the market about how equal treatment, you know, folks never, you know, some people came out saying, oh, I never believed in equal treatment. Um, I can't believe, you know, that we sort of fell for that. But in the end, at the end of the day, the the government made good on its promise of equal treatment and, and ended up uh, honoring that. So it was really quite remarkable. So Scott, maybe now's a good time to, to transition sort of right before we take a quick break, but to transition into the more recent, very, very recent um, province of Buenos Aires restructuring. And so I think there's there's been a lot of, attention focused, and in fact, this is what I mentioned in the intro, but attention focused on the 
reuse of the Pac-Man redesignation strategies that made an appearance uh, in in the earlier Argentine restructuring. But I kind of wanted to focus on the some other aspects of the the deal, and in particular, the sort of threat to to change the place of payment for bonds that were held out of the restructuring um, and the decision to pay accrued interest only to consenting creditors, things that at least the, the scuttlebutt that I've heard has made at least a subset of investors really kind of peevish and smacks of like real hardball um, restructuring tactics by by the, the province. So... What is your sense of how the the market is reacting? I mean, the there's high participation in the in the restructuring. That that certainly was true, but you know, is that because people thought they were getting sweet economic terms and didn't care that the you know the the mechanics of the restructuring were putting the squeeze on, or is it because they were squeezed? Is that why we have such high participation? Yeah, it, it's it's a great question and. It, to me, it's really both. Um, like you said, the economics of the deal were actually pretty favorable for investors. They were getting, you know, some, you know, sizable coupons, uh, you know, a, a front dated um, payment schedule. It wasn't anything, you know, too outlandish or outrageous. Um, at the end of the day, and especially after 16 months of, of, of this saga, um, the, the payment terms were very in line with what Argentina gave its creditors in the sovereign deal. At the same time, for those of those creditors that you know may not have chosen to to tender in the deal, the, the terms were quite terrible. Uh, like you mentioned, they did this thing where they, province of Buenos Aires said it would change the place of payment uh, for holders that didn't tender into the deal to an entity, a financial entity in Argentina. Like I mentioned before, capital controls make getting your money out of Argentina quite onerous. Um, in addition to that, uh, there was this other stick that, that the province was wielding against creditors where they threatened uh, or said that they wouldn't pay creditors any past due interest or PDI um, if they held out of the deal. And Me Too and I have had conversations about the legality of this and me too. I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that as well. But in addition to those two terms, there was also just purely worse economic terms for creditors that would have tried to hold out. Um, there were cuts in coupons. Overall net present value of the deal, if you didn't tender in it, was, was something like 10 points worse uh, than, than if you had, had accepted. So there were all sorts of, of big sticks uh, that, that the province was, was wielding against creditors. Well, let's take a quick break and then we can pick up by um, maybe putting Me Too on the spot so he can, he can tell us all about the legality of selectively paying accrued interest. So Scott, to add some clarity or to try and attempt an answer to your question at the end of our first half, I think one, one needs to think a little bit about the whole 
history of what are called exit consents or exit exchange offers. Oh, and um, PBA, that PBA does one of these here and the threat of changing the place of payment uh, combined with uh, the payment of past due interest to some creditors, a, a significant chunk of past due interest to some creditors, but not to others, as you pointed out, th this was a big chunk of change, um, all combined. So to step back, exit exchanges have always been legally dubious because they depend on a number of legal fictions and a majority of creditors combined with the debtor seeming to coerce a minority into agreeing to the deal. Now, courts have allowed this to go through. There's a very famous case, Katz versus Oak Industries, where one of the most famous US corporate law judges, Chancellor Allen, uh, allows a deal to go forward, but he makes it very clear in his opinion that this is a deal that is quite benign and uh, creditors actually as a whole are benefiting from this deal. And he also makes it clear that this is on the edge, but it could easily go over the edge. And, and we've seen later cases mostly under the Trust Indenture Act, so that's a diff different category, but we've seen later cases go over the edge, in including in the UK. Now, now let's move to the province of Buenos Aires. First, they use redesignation and Pac-Man that were already problematic. And then they combine it with this threat to change the place of payment, which is not just a threat to change the place of payment, but it's basically saying, you know, we're gonna change the place of payment if you don't agree, maybe, and then we're gonna impose capital controls to make sure you can't get any of your money out. Now, so you're adding threat upon threat upon threat. And then they say, you know, if you agree to the deal, we'll give you a big chunk of money. And if you don't agree to the deal, we won't give it to you. Now, why is all of this seriously problematic? Well, starting, the, these exit exchanges are already on the legal knife edge. And the reason they're on the legal knife edge is because the contracts are set up so that the collective gets to make a free decision about whether or not the deal is good for them or not. And when you add coercive techniques, it's not at all clear that the contracts are working the way they're supposed to. And the, the question to be asked then is, has this gone over the edge? And uh, I, I'm curious as to whether Mark thinks so, but I think, I mean, they didn't just go over the edge. I mean, they just, they plunged into the abyss. And so then, then the question is why the, like how, Creditors have really expensive lawyers, so either I'm completely reading the law wrong, which is which is quite possible, uh, or something else is going on as to why the creditors did not just um, go after, uh, just go for the jugular here, as we saw Elliott Associates do 
uh, the last time around because they certainly have the best lawyers in the world. So Mark, do, do, do you agree with my articulation of sort of why, like all of this adds up uh, to being kind of like, it's just a really bad smell. Yeah, and I, I guess, Scott, if you, the way I'd like to sort of frame it is, are creditors just super short term in their time horizons? Like my sense of these markets is that when something happens once, it becomes a precedent and it's given a lot of weight and you know, lawyers will point to it as, you know, oh, this is the way it's done now. I would be, even if I liked the financial terms of this deal, I would be worried at the fact that it now looks like creditors have kind of implicitly given their seal of approval to something so coercive. Is that is that not a concern, do you think? Yeah, I you know, I think I think part of the dynamic here. And, and we were we were talking about this in the break. Is, is that there is a bit of short termism in the market when it comes to Argentina? Um, someone someone once told me Argentina is not a country that you invest in; it's a country that you trade, right? And so there was some certainly some level of let's make a deal. And and this was this was present present in the in the sovereign as well. Let's make a deal that has you know a reasonable enough NPV that we make our you know, we, we make our profits and, and we, we all move on. Um, so there, there's certainly some of that. You also, I think, have to take into account the, the, the lay of the land in, in, in terms of, of who was holding these bonds. Um, we reported you know, pretty, pretty widely and, and early on in the PBA restructuring that Golden Tree Asset Management was the largest holder of, of PBA's bonds. Uh, if you recall at the beginning of, of the podcast, I mentioned Axel's, Axel Kisilov's standoff with Fidelity and that $250 million bond payment that they ended up paying in the end. Well, after that whole debacle, Fidelity ended up offloading most of their, most of their Argentine debt, excuse me, most of their, their province of Buenos Aires debt, and Golden Tree was its largest buyer. So by default, Golden Tree sort of became the point fund uh, in the negotiations, um, and and were the largest holders by many orders of magnitude. Uh, representatives from Golden Tree told me that at least on some of the series of bonds, they held uh, more than twenty times uh, the the debt that some of the other funds that were on the the creditors ad hoc steering committee committee held. Um, so far and away, they were they were sort of the biggest the biggest player in the room, and because of that they were able to hash out a deal with PBA's lawyers almost, you know, almost in a, in a bilateral fashion without a whole lot of input from some of the other creditors on the steering committee. And that made a lot of creditors quite upset um, for, for obvious reasons. If you're sitting on the steering committee of a creditor group and, and all of a sudden you get a, an, an offer that you had no say in, uh, I imagine that 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 rubbed some people the wrong way, um, and so getting back to the the coerciveness of the deal, you had PBA's lawyers and Golden Tree, the, its largest fund, basically saying, "Look, we're going to get to a deal. We're going to give you good terms, but if you don't take it, you're kind of screwed." Um, and I think that was really the case in you know really really what happened with PBA. So Scott, I, I want to follow up on this because 
in some ways, this is, to me, at the core of the story. So as I read what happened, Golden Tree started out, you know, when they, they filed their complaint trying to sue, they started out in almost Elliot Associate fashion. It was sort of this very, I thought, creative argument, uh, well-made about how they had a right to sue without, you know, having to go through the trustee for past due interest. And then all of a sudden, they, 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 they back off from the litigation strategy. And what I've heard, the scuttlebutt, is they cooperate with the debtor, in fact, maybe even affirmatively urge the debtor, although I, I don't know, um, to push the smaller creditors into agreeing to a deal that they want. And so th there's, you know, this opens up a completely different can of worms because, you know, what we talked about earlier about a highly coercive exchange offer would violate or potentially violate things like the duties of good faith that are implicit in all contracts governed by New York law. But when you have a majority creditor or large creditor cooperating with the debtor to screw over other creditors, then this looks kind of like, you know, uh, you know, if, if you've been following the whole Scarlett Johansson versus Disney litigation, this looks like tortious interference. Uh, and, you know, that that's that's a different kettle of fish altogether now that that's really an obscure legal doctrine uh but i don't know they 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 seem to be taking a lot of uh, legal risks here and um, i i am uh, puzzled that this was this all uh, went by without a lot more complaint, but maybe people are are complaining implicitly. So, Mark, I may, may, I know the invocation of tortious interference is uh, from left field, but uh, we have certainly gotten emails from creditors, uh, and they're um, at least ones who know the law, saying, "Hey, this 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 looks really bad." Yeah, I mean, well, we've we have a. a credit slips post about this that probably says enough for now I, i'm i i guess it's just i am still so so scott you you were leading us in a direction that i think is important about the sort of the short-term interests that creditors may have and some of the kind of turnover in the creditor base that happened here but i guess i'm still puzzled do you have you heard explanations other than these are good financial terms for why creditors aren't kicking up more of a fuss or even why it was necessary to play such hardball. Maybe that's the, the way to think about this. Like what do the Argentines or, and the, the province, since I assume there's some at least informal coordination here, like what do they get out of playing such hardball? Well, a few things, I think, first of all, they get a deal done. Um, 
which you know is is obviously good for 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 the province's image. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of political sort of machinations I, I think that are that are going on here that that we haven't gotten to talk about. I mean, in Argentina, and especially politicians, not not all politicians, but but politicians certainly in the in the Kirchnerist camp, uh, that is sort of the far left um, faction that has historically been a little more you know co uh, a little more what's the word I'm looking for um, antagonistic uh, with international markets. Um, they often are able to use some of this this rhetoric or or this this tough guy uh, stand stand this tough guy standpoint uh, to win political points at home. I mean, you have to remember that we're coming right up on midterm elections here in Argentina. The the primaries are this Sunday, and the 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 midterm elections will be held November fourteenth. Um, and, and as it stands now, the, the current, you know, the incumbent Alberto Fernandez coalition is looking like it's going to lose some serious ground, um, not least because of its, you know, uh, people are fed up with, with the government's handling of the pandemic. There was a sort of a scandalous photograph of, of the president hosting a birthday party with his, with friends and family. Uh, during the the darkest days of the lockdown in July 2020, which has certainly hurt his image, so there's a lot of of, of political you know catch up to be done, a lot of ground uh, to be regained, and for the province of Buenos Aires to say come out and say, look, we we strong armed our way into getting you know getting a deal that that works for us that will allow us to to save, you know, save all this money over the next, over the next years that we're going to be used, that's going to be used to pay for schools and for hospitals and infrastructure and, and what have you. I mean, that, that scores big political points at home and the government, uh, the, the, the Kirchnerist uh, standpoint in this, I mean, they're always able to use that narrative to, to their advantage. And it's good political theater. It's it's fun to watch, um, but at the end of the day, also at the same time, the province. I mean, Axel Kicillof, uh, Christina Fernandez, they they have quite a track record of of in the end paying the the obligations, even after all of the kerfuffle, even after all of the um, the hot air and, and and games that they like to play with international markets. So um, there is there is a political a political spin to it. So, um, Scott, if I may ask, uh, I, I, I think I read this in some of your articles. Uh, some bondholders did not succumb to the pressure. Uh, my, my memory of your pieces is that both in the Republic's deal and in the PBA's deal, there are some bonds that could not be restructured because uh, bondholders anticipated what would happen. And they just said, you know, we, we have a blocking position. We're not, uh, we're not gonna give in to your threats. So what's happening with those bonds? And do we have a sense of who the holders are who call who called the bluff, or is it a bluff? I mean, my sense is that the Republic is paying them those holdouts in full and that 
the PBA will will pay them in full too. But I, but I don't know because so many threats were made. Right. Yeah. So the, the truth is is that it's still pretty murky on on who these holdouts are. Now, I mean, one one portion of the holdouts were certainly investors or, or people that are retail investors that are asleep at the wheel, so to speak. Um, you know, someone who's holding a you know some. Some somebody's grandmother who's holding a bond in rural Italy or something that isn't you know reading the Bloomberg wires um, that happened to be sitting on a gold mine. Um, a lot in the Republic's case, a lot of those those holders were they they worked to identify some of those holders and and bring them into the restructuring. Um, but you're right, there were a subset of bonds in the Republic's restructuring and in PBAs as well of bondholders who either by chance or, or by well-calculated strategy, managed to, to, to call the bluff or to hold out on the deal. And, and the way that they were able to do that was really because they held sort of the perfect bond. Um, now, remember, we, we, we said that PBA used redesignation here to leave some of the bonds out of the restructuring. Well, these creditors, in, in, in essence, used redesignation to their advantage. If, if you were a holder of, of an older indenture bond with a very high CAC threshold on that series, and you happen to own a significant portion of it, um, you, there was a good chance that, that you would be able to block that, that bond from being included in the restructuring. And that's essentially what, what happened here. So there, at least in PBA, there are at least one or two funds uh, that that we've been tipped off about. I can't say any names at, at this point because they're st it's still not confirmed, and we're and we're working to figure out who these folks are. Um, but there are people out there that look like they're either going to have to negotiate with the province to get a better deal, or the province will pay them outright, or or we'll see. Um, it's 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 interesting. <laughs> one one source uh, described one of these bonds to me recently as as gold dust uh, because the holdings of, of one of these holdout PBA bonds are so scattered and it's so difficult to to identify everyone uh, that has them. But if if you did have one of these bonds, you're potentially sitting on a gold mine. Now, also, I, I should add that in the in the grand scheme of things, the percentage of bonds that were held out of the PBA deal were just a little over two percent of the seven seven point one billion dollar uh, PBA restructuring. So, I mean, we're talking a total amount of of holdouts in the range of one hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty million dollars. So, it's not. Uh, you know, it's not on the same order of magnitude as as the sovereign restructuring. Um, but if you were a hedge fund holding holding one of these notes, potentially you got you you could be getting a big a big chunk. I mean, in some ways, the interesting thing to me, or one of the interesting things, is that we're seeing kind of the scars of the episode with Elliot in some of the the hardball tactics here you know it sounds like the holdouts who are getting paid in full this is a sort of an inconsequential corner of the debt universe um 
so that that's maybe something that can be set aside. But the hardball tactics um, both play well politically uh, in Argentina, but also make pretty clear what's going to happen to uh, what would have happened if if um, uh, people had held out from the deal and found themselves with the you know, new place of payment and and so forth. I guess um, the the other lesson I take from Argentina though is that creditors are going to immediately forget all that they um they 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 complain, they bemoan, they say that Argentina is a terrible credit, and you know doesn't know how to behave properly. But then they immediately forget all those things after the restructuring and start throwing lots of money at the country again. Is that um is that your sense of of what's going to happen now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly history has shown that to, to sort of be be the, the cyclical outcome of, of default debt restructuring, you know, a, a triumphant return to international credit markets, creditors throwing a bunch of money into Argentina, and then default restructuring again. Um, so, if is taking history as a guide, yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, at this point, it's a bit unclear. There, there are a lot of moving parts as to when you know that might occur or how that might occur. Um, Argentina is still in the midst of reworking a, a, a forty-five million, excuse me, forty-five billion dollar uh, credit line with or, or lending program with the International Monetary Fund. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, there's still uncertainty surrounding the the incumbent coalition's performance in the midterm elections, and then down the line, what happens with uh, with the elections in 2023? So that's sort of the timeline that that investors are are looking at. Um, but it's it's I mean at, at this point still unclear if if Alberto Fernandez and and his and his his crowd will will we'll be able to hang on for another another term after 2023 or if we'll see some sort of return to a you know a more market friendly macri-esque um, government if the juntos por el cambio the opposition party ends up performing well so um, there's still a lot of questions surrounding it well we will um we will have plenty to talk about uh, in the future and hopefully we can get you back to do that but uh thanks so much for taking the time to to come on the podcast, Scott. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks. I really enjoyed it.